I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's study of a desert obsession. Fourth of Forever. Starring John David. And Susan Oliver. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Zero Hour. Sponsored in part by Wrigley Gum, Sinoff, and Ford Motor Company. This is The Zero Hour on Mutual Radio. for gambling, a dependence upon alcohol, and a desire for one woman. Lou Jackson, one woman. A woman who knows what she wants and what's necessary to do to get it. They met in a parking lot on the Sunset Strip. The right place, the right time. For James Marius, the desire has become an obsession. But the obsession has left him penniless and vulnerable. For Lou Jackson, this is a man primed for action, not afraid to take a risk, a risk she is now prepared to ask him to take. The stakes must be high and the odds long. The reward James Marius will seek is nothing short of forever. Fourth of Forever continues in a moment. Hello, I'm Anita Kerr. The Veterans Administration says that if you are a veteran just getting home, you should talk over your future with VA as soon as possible. Find out about GI training and education opportunities. The GI Bill gives you a chance to continue your schooling and get paid while you go. And when you are finished, you will qualify for better employment and make more money than you can now. So, don't take the first job that comes along just because it's the easy thing to do. Think of a career rather than a job and prepare for it with the GI training time you earned while in uniform. You'll wind up with better pay and a happier future. Visit, write or call your nearest VA office today and get started. I slept very little that night, my nightmare replayed in living color. All the next morning I was tense, anxious, filled with an almost evil foreboding. And yet, I couldn't help thinking about the fortune Lou had half promised. She phoned me in the afternoon. Her voice was warm and easy as always. She suggested we meet for a drink at Pernod Place. In a way, it was sort of ironic. We had first met there when I was in the depths, and now it seems our second meeting might rocket me to new heights. 
Yeah. Waiting long? Just got here. Sit down, darling. I missed you all night. You wondered why I left? Understatement. Waiter. Two scotches on the rocks. Remember what we were discussing? Yeah. I used to know a girl named Clara. No glamour puss, no sharp cookie. Actually, she's pretty dull. Yeah. I first met her when I, I came out here. Clara's a secretary private secretary to a rich real estate man, Theodore Warren, Ted Warren. Ever heard of him? Maybe the name's familiar. Well, Clara has no life of her own, no men, not much of anything, so she's built her whole life around her boss, all she can talk about. She takes care, but really, of all the details for him. Whenever we met for lunch, she'd tell me every little thing. Frankly, it, it was a bore. I couldn't have cared less. Why did you keep on seeing her then? Oh, I felt sorry for her, I suppose. Anyhow, her boss, Ted Warren, has lots of irons in the fire. He goes to New York every month or two and takes huge amounts of cash with him. Well, part in cash, part in negotiable stocks and bonds. Don't you think that's rather odd? Well, it takes a week to ten days for a check to clear between Los Angeles and New York. Maybe he uses the money for down payments, guarantees, possibly performance bonds. That might be it. Anyway, Mr. Warren, I gather, is a bit of an old toad. Always stays at the same hotel, same suite. <laughs> he likes a particular view of the park. You're building up to something. What? Why don't you get that money the next time Warren goes to New York? There it was. All laid out on the table. I couldn't believe it as I stared across the table at Lou. Her soft face, her aura of gentleness. I can get all the details from Clara. She won't even know I'm asking. She'd never suspect me. What about Warren? What about him? He doesn't know you from Adam. Well, but couldn't he make a connection between Clara and you? Maybe, but by that time, we'll be so far away from here, they'll never find us. If I go to New York, it'll take money just to get there. Oh, I thought of that. Here is a cashier's check. $1,000. It's nearly the last of what I have. We're in this together, darling. Let's drink to it. That next week, Lou renewed her friendship with Clara. They met for lunch nearly every day at exactly 12 noon. Lou had come to my apartment in the evening with a bottle and the latest information. On Thursday, when I heard her footsteps coming through the patio, I knew that Lou had news to relay that would finally be useful. Oh, love, good news. Warren's going to New York on the 23rd. Oh, that doesn't leave us much time. There's more. Let's go inside. He's got a reservation on Transcontinental Airlines Flight 171 for the 23rd. That's Wednesday. Mm-hmm. He arrives at 9.36 New York time. Kennedy Airport? No, Newark. And he'll take a taxi from there to the Park Hamilton in Manhattan. Well, what about the money? He stays right in his room, in a briefcase. And that's where you'll relieve him of it. What about a gun? Doesn't own one. Clara says he hates loud noises. <laughs> Warren must be a real ringer. 
No gun. Still, I'll need one. Do you have a gun? I can get one. How? I'll tell you later. The following morning, I went out to a studio where a director friend of mine was shooting a picture. On the soundstage, I managed to lift a revolver from the props. Smith & Wesson, 38. It was easy. Next, I needed bullets. I bought them in the black market on Sunset. Then I got Warren's business address from the Yellow Pages. Dressed in a pair of coveralls like maintenance servicemen wearing with an assortment of plastic alphabet letters, I took up a position in the corridor outside the doors of Warren's office. I pretended to make adjustments on the building's board, but while I waited for Warren to leave for lunch, promptly at 12. Lillard told me that he usually carried an expensive alligator briefcase. I glanced at my watch. One minute of... a man with a briefcase, but I wasn't positive the man was worn. The time was right, and he carried a briefcase, but he was younger than I thought he'd be. I went through the heavy walnut panel doors, which were lettered in gold. Theodore K. Warren, Realty. A young, pretty receptionist was seated behind a desk. Yes? I say, uh, is Mr. Warren in... Who shall I say is calling? From the, uh, the, the garage. Oh, I'm sorry. Mr. Warren just left for lunch. Oh. Well, was that him getting on the elevator when I got off wearing a dark suit, carrying a briefcase? Must have been. He hasn't been gone two minutes. your whole face aches. When you need occasional help, get Sinoff tablets, the sinus medicine. Sinoff works with a full dose of pure aspirin for sinus headache, plus a sinus drainer for congestion. That's how Sinoff helps sinus pain while you drain. Help sinus pain while you drain. Take Sinoff only as directed. S-I-N-E-O-F-F. The sinus medicine in the bright red box. Here you are, darling. You're worried about something. I got a look at Ted Warren. Have you ever seen him? No, all I know about him is what Clara's told me. What Clara's told you isn't quite true. Warren's not the little toad he is supposed to be. But that's not what worries me. What is it, then? If Clara gives you a wrong description about how Warren looks, why can't she be wrong about a lot of other things we're depending on? I wouldn't worry. Clara may have described Warren as a doddering, puttering little old man. It depends on her just to make herself feel more important. But fact, business facts, oh, she couldn't make a mistake about them. I hope not. Uh, stop worrying, darling. Just, just think about us. 
I guarantee it'll work. The afternoon of Tuesday, the 22nd, Lou came to my apartment. I left my car parked there. She drove me to the airport. On the way, we went over the plan. Warren will check into the Park Hamilton Suite 1220 around 1045. At 11, he should be getting ready for bed. That's when I hit him. I'll get the money and be out of the hotel by 10 after 11. I'll have a cab waiting to take me to LaGuardia Airport in time to catch the 12.30 flight to L.A. Right? Now, if something goes wrong and you don't catch it... Well, I'll wait for the next flight. Where will you stay tonight? I'll find a hotel near the Park Hamilton. And tomorrow, during the day, I'll get a look at Warren's suite, locate the doors, windows, exits, elevators, and so on. Tomorrow night, when he arrives, I'll be ready. On the flight to New York, I still had doubts. I realized I was taking a calculated risk and was banking on my strength and nerves to mesh correctly with time, place, and circumstances to gain a fortune. But I wasn't sure I still had the guts to pull it off. I wasn't a coward, I never have been, but now I was trying to be honest. The cold fact was, I didn't want to rob Warren. It was Lou who had put me on the plane, winging closer each minute to New York, it was this very weakness in submitting to Lou that made me doubt myself. My memory of those desolate years of loneliness and despair before I met Lou was my greatest enemy. I couldn't fight the future she'd brought me, a green oasis of hope. We will be landing in New York City in approximately 20 minutes. We hope you've enjoyed your flight. I registered in a small hotel, the Shropshire, under the name of Howard Morgan. It was only a couple of blocks from the Park Hamilton. The next morning, I slept late, had breakfast, then strolled over to familiarize myself with the layout of Warren's hotel. It had three entrances, one on 59th Street and two around the corner on 5th Avenue. The streets were narrow and congested and could easily be traffic traps, so I decided against the taxi for my escape. Instead, I'd walk over to 59th and Madison to catch a cab to the airport. The lobby of the Park Hamilton was big, ornate, with acres of green carpeting and vast walls of antique mirrored glass. It was possible to enter the hotel and go to the elevators without passing the registration desk, so I took one to the 10th floor. Most hotel rooms are numbered identically as the floors ascend. In other words, suite 1020, but probably with the same layout as 1220, where Warren would stay. 1020 had a main door opening on the broad corridor running parallel to Fifth Avenue. There was a secondary entrance and a small corridor around the corner. I decided this second door led to either a service pantry or a back bedroom. Next to it was a stairway encased in a firewell. I climbed it, two floors, and found myself standing outside the service door of Suite 1220. The layout of the two suites was identical. So I returned by the stairs again to the 10th floor where I caught the elevator to the lobby. Then I left the hotel. I went to a drugstore and bought copper wire, adhesive tape, and a pair of women's nylons. I'd used one of them for a face mask. I passed the rest of that interminable day waiting for the inevitable night, thinking about Lou, about our future together, with enough money to live in style. I worked out in my mind how it would be when I confronted Warren. He would answer the door. 
I'd hold him at the point of my revolver, bind his hands with wire, and tape his mouth shut. Then lock him in a closet. It'd take him at least ten minutes to get free. If he put up a fight, I'd smack him with a gun, knock him unconscious. At eleven o'clock, I left the bar in the Shropshire. I wasn't drunk. I returned to my room, got my gun, and the rest of what I'd need. Then I started for the park Hamilton and Ted Warren. Mustang 2, undoubtedly the right car at the right time. Built smaller than the original Mustang with a thrifty four-cylinder engine that's easy on gas. Mustang 2 is light in weight, richly appointed, has rack and pinion steering, bucket seats, four-speed transmission, and tachometer. All standard. Mustang 2 sticker price is $28.95, excluding dealer prep destination charges, title, and taxes. Mustang 2, it's luxury plus economy at your local Ford dealer. I stopped behind the metal door of the firewell on the 12th floor. There I took off my top coat, folded it, and placed it on the floor just inside the door. The wire and tape were in my pockets. Pulling an nylon over my face, I checked my gun and stepped out into the hall. For a moment, I stared at the door. 12.20. This was the point of no return. Who's there? Uh, Mr. Warren? Uh, Sam, sorry to disturb you. Uh, I'm from maintenance. What the hell's that? There, there's a short on this floor. Uh... I gotta check the lights. Oh, hurry it up. I'm getting ready for bed. As soon as I saw the door crack open, I slammed it back on him with all my might and knocked him halfway across the room. He was wearing an open dressing gown and pajama pants. Behind him, a hall led to a darkened bedroom. A mirror in the hall reflected the open door. Though I had the revolver pointed at his chest, he appeared more angry than frightened. What do you want? The money, Mr. Warren. My wallet? You're welcome to. You know what I mean? Where's the briefcase? You won't shoot. You'd never make it out of the hotel. Just shut up. And give me the damn briefcase. It's over in the bureau. Get it? All right. And keep your hands where I can see them. Warren went to the bureau, took out the briefcase, and came back, holding it in front of him. Then, he shot me from behind his briefcase. I fell back. My right arm jerked up into pain. I saw the reflection of the flame from my revolver in the mirror before the bedroom. Warren pitched forward to the floor. I didn't stop with the brief- briefcase or anything. I just turned and ran. In the firewell by the stairs, I realized I had dropped my revolver in the suite, but I couldn't go back. Warren was wounded, but he still had his gun. He was probably on the phone calling for help at that very moment. Blood was dripping from my arm, running down my wrist and spattering the concrete stairs. I grabbed my top coat and started down, leaving a red trail behind me. At the mezzanine floor, just above the lobby, I stopped again. I yanked off the nylon mask and struggled out of my jacket. 
Rolling up the sleeve of my shirt, I looked at the wound. The bullet was lodged in the muscle of my right arm, a few inches above the elbow. I knew it had to come out, and soon. I wrapped a piece of the soft copper wire around my arm above the wound, twisting it into a tourniquet to stem the flow of blood. Then I bit into the tape, tore off a strip, and plastered it over the nylon to make a bandage. By now, my arm was stiff and throbbing. I had a tough time getting back into my jacket. I swung the top coat over my shoulders, leaving it to hang free, and covered my wounded arm, which I stuffed in my jacket pocket for support. Then I descended the firewell to the lobby. I opened the metal door to the firewell and peered out. I could see across the lobby. Everything seemed normal. But just then, two men, unmistakably detectives, accompanied by a cop in uniform, came in the Fifth Avenue entrance and walked briskly to the registration desk. Whatever they said caused the desk clerk to start in surprise, and he hurriedly called the night manager. Then it went into a huddle, then the manager and the two plainclothesmen headed for the elevators. The uniformed cop stayed at the desk and looked over the lobby. I didn't wait. Forcing myself to stroll casually, I made it to the 59th Street entrance. Ignoring the doorman's offer to get me a cab, I headed down 59th Street toward Madison Avenue. At the corner of Madison, I flagged down a taxi and got in. Hey, where to, Mac? What time is it? 11.30. Uh, it's too late to catch my flight. So? All right, what next? Penn Station. On our way. I didn't go to the station. I knew there'd be an APB out for a wounded man at all railroad stations, airports, bus depots, even ship terminals. I got out at 37th Street. Down the block, I saw a cut-rate drugstore and headed for it, self-service. I picked up a cheap canvas suitcase, a bottle of iodine, roll of cotton, a box of cleaning tissue, a razor, and cheesy orange sports shirt, the only one in the store that would fit me. A cashier with hair handed about the color of my new shirt checked me out with a comment about my hand. The whole right side of my body was stiffening up. I told her I had arthritis in my shoulder. And she told me her husband had arthritis, and uh, that was that. I walked aimlessly down the street, my mind fuzzy with shock and fatigue. But I had to find a place to stay the night. I had to get off the streets before I was picked up. A liquor store was closing for the night, but I had caught it in time to buy a bottle of whiskey. A hundred proof. By now, my arm was pulsating in a deadly, heavy rhythm. My sense of balance dipped and whirled. I fought to remain conscious. In desperation, I hailed another cab. You drunk? Uh, no. No. Sick. Won't drive it drunk, but if you're just sick, buddy, I'll take you. Hospital? Not the hospital. Stranger in town just just got in. Take me to his hotel. I just want to go to bed. Which hotel? Anyone. Just so it isn't midtown. Some down near the village. Okay. Archway Hotel is located on East 9th Street. It's small and secluded with miserable little potted trees on each side of the entrance. The desk clerk watched me full of doubts and suspicion. I registered awkwardly with my left hand, signing under the name of Seton. 
I explained to him that I had smashed my right hand on the train. He looked relieved and showed me my room. As soon as he was gone, I threw myself on the bed and opened a suitcase. The world was spinning like a gyroscope. I pulled out the bottle, worked the cap free with my teeth, and I took a pull. The whiskey ran down my chin and dripped to my chest. My worst fears had been realized. Clara's information, like her description, had been wrong. I fell asleep holding the bottle in my belly, thinking about Lou and the future we'd lost. You are listening to Mutual's presentation of The Zero Hour. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, Fourth of Forever. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Today's episode brought to you in part by Wrigley Gum Sign-Off and Ford Motor Company. This is The Zero Hour on Mutual Radio. been listening to The Zero Hour, a presentation of the Mutual Broadcasting System in association with Hollywood Radio Theater, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow. And once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. This is the Mutual Radio Network.